All right. <clears throat> oh. we'll let these folks filter in. Um, so last week, just to sort of catch us up to where we are now, we are in. If you have never been to Amana before, we are in the book of Second Kings. We are in the book of Second Kings of the Bible. If that's a surprise to anybody, um, that's what we're reading today, and that is exclusively what we'll be reading. So if that doesn't sound interesting to you, then it's too late. Um, so the last week we saw, well before last week, we saw some pretty horrible kings pass through the land of Israel and some pretty okay kings pass through the land of Judah. Israel being a larger land sort of to the north that contains the actual promised territories of the Lord and Judah being a smaller land to the south that is more, um, that actually houses the continuation of the Davidic kingship, which would be the line of David that has passed down. And the Lord promised uh, King David that his line would be the one that succeeds, and eventually a man will rise up out of that who we know as Jesus. Um, And so Judah is where David's line has continued. I'm, I'm pointing, you guys don't really know because you can't see the map that I have in my head. But when I point up here, I'm going to talk about Israel. When I point down here, I'm talking about Judah, thinking geographically. Um, or maybe I should just stop pointing because that's confusing. Because the four of you listening to this recording won't know where I'm pointing. Um, but the we're going to go over four chapters today. We're going to go over chapter 18 all the way through chapter 21. And this pretty much exclusively deals with the land of Judah, the land down here. Um, And we just saw, for the first time in a while, a not good king come through. We've had kings that were, um, that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, for the most part. Um, There were these high places that they talk about that were set up for worship that were actually not at all Uh, commanded by God to be set up, and there were sort of a, um, there were definitely a deviation, and they were kind of derived from the whole uh, altar worship that was going on in the lands around them. Um, Just for some reference, all the lands surrounding Israel and Judah, they had regional gods that they worshipped, and that was their whole perspective of how having a god worked, was that a god was contained in a little geographic area. So if that happened in America today, Texas would have its God that would probably look like a Whataburger burger. And then, you know, Oklahoma would have its God that would look like, I'm afraid to guess. Um, And stuff like that. And the Statue of Liberty would be the God of New York, things like that. A major uh, symbol of that area that everyone actually worshipped. They actually made sacrifices, sometimes horrific sacrifices to these things. And for the most part, they were items that they thought contained the God of their land. Um, so we'll see that actually a little later today. Some people get sort of confused because they think that God himself is just another one of these regional gods, when that's not true. God is God over everything. He created the entire world, um, but that's not the perspective that a lot of these pagan nations have. Um, <clears throat> so, But that's the perspective Judah has, and Israel in some weird sense. They've fallen into all sorts of mishmashed uh, belief systems. At one time, they followed the Lord, who is recognized um, when he's called the Lord, and Lord is in all caps in this book, um, that is referring to his proper name, which is Yahweh. So sometimes I may switch it around just so we sort of get a a taste for uh, the language that this was written in. Um, 
and so let me back up. Okay, so we've had good kings, fairly good kings in Judah, but they've had these high places that nobody has seemed to be able to get rid of so far, or nobody's really attempted to get rid of. And the high places are kind of the one consistent thing that God does not like. They always mention that this king was good, but he didn't get rid of the high places. Um, and then we had a king named Ahaz, who we talked about last week, who was not good. He was evil, and he was very heavily influenced by the pagan practices going on in the nations around them. He saw um, an altar in Assyria, and he had an altar just like it built in Judah because he loved it so much, but um, that was that was how little of a grasp he had on true worship of Yahweh was that you're not, you don't make an altar and then worship the altar. You worship the God himself. Um, so, but luckily, well not luckily, uh, I've got to use different words. Providentially, Ahaz is no longer king, and uh, we have a new king in Israel, in uh, Judah, excuse me, um, named Hezekiah, and that is where chapter 18 starts, which is where we're going to go off from today. Um, hopefully I didn't skip anything, but if I did, just go listen to last week's. Um, so, chapter 18, we will begin where all chapters begin in verse 1. Uh, in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel... Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. And they'll say David his father because, especially in this case, it's uh, usually you're better off recognizing David as your father than your actual father. And with Ahaz as his dad, um, that is absolutely a better person to identify himself with, and more fitting. Um, verse 4, he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses, Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Neoshitan. Yeah. Um, so pause real quick. So he removed the high places. That's actually a really big deal. And if you were to read this book in its entirety, you would get kind of sick of the pattern, I think, of there came this king. He was good, but he didn't get rid of the high places. This is a great break from that rhythm that we had going of kings that were good, except they didn't get rid of the high places, and uh, it kind of spoiled some of their good kingship because they just couldn't fully worship God the way he had intended them to. Um, so this guy removes the high places. That is, that's fantastic. Um, and uh, <clears throat> there's also this bronze serpent that, even though Moses had made it, people started to worship the bronze serpent. And so he figured, you know what, this is not causing people to glorify God. We're just going to get rid of it. It kind of reminds me of um, that verse in the New Testament, which talks about if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Um, not that we are to actually gouge out our eyes, but in this case, the bronze servant was causing people to sin, so he said, let's just get rid of it, um, which was a wise, uh, I think, political decision, um, political and spiritual, being the spiritual head over this nation. Um, so verse 5, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. 
He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory, from watchtower to fortified city. Now this section is important because in the last chapter, or the last, I think it was two chapters ago, his dad, Ahaz, had made an alliance with the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are historically enemies of Israel. Um, They're always trying to find a way to uh, circumvent Israel and take them over. Um, They really want the land of Israel and the land of Judah. Um, And Ahaz was more than willing to create a partnership with them and to give them all kinds of gold. Um, And in a very simple but faithful move, Hezekiah says, we're not going to do that, Um, which is really, really good. And uh, the Philistines, they have for a very long time been enemies of Israel, enemies of Yahweh specifically, because they have, um, they have gods that they worship that are just, uh, if you read the, the stuff that people would do as offerings, as uh, ways to try to appease these gods, it's really, really bad stuff. A lot of it goes directly against commandments that the Lord gave, but even just as a person hearing this kind of stuff, like sacrificing children, and like ritual sex in order for rain to come down. Like, we just, that, that's creepy. We don't like it just on a base level, but also God doesn't like it either. Um, so, uh, so that's also a good thing that He is able to keep the Philistines out of the land, keep their practices especially out of the land. Um, verse 9 In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, he took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. Samaria is in this land in the north. It's not in Judah. Um, The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Hala, and on the Habor, and the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened nor obeyed. So this is sort of a callback to the previous chapter where the people of Israel were actually brought out of the land of Israel. And though this was um, some of the neighboring lands that did this, I think it was the Assyrians, um, it was actually in order to fulfill a punishment from God that they had been so disobedient and unfaithful to him that he said you know what you don't love me anymore and you are in this land because I promised it to you but I can no longer call you my people so now I'm taking you out of the land but he's using these enemy nations to do his will Um, and that's another thing that uh, we're going to get into a little bit later is how God's will is not stopped just because people are doing things that don't quite seem like they make sense for God's will. His will is always being acted through, um, and I'm making that more confusing than it needs to be. I'll, br- I'll come back to that later. Um, where are we at now? Verse 13. In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, or is it Sennacherib, um, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord 
and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave, gave it to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshakeh with a great army from Lachish to king Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And when they called for the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So what's going on here is um, Hezekiah is trying to not go to war with Assyria, basically. And he's saying, okay, you've done all this stuff to Israel. I've wronged you. Is there any way we can come to sort of a peace agreement so that we don't have to fight each other? And uh, basically, the king of Assyria says, sure, and then changes his mind later. He doesn't want to be at peace. He wants to conquer. He wants to show, I have gotten victory over this land. And so he sends these three guys, and uh, if you have a different translation from me, um, they're called by their titles in this. It's the Tartan, the Rapsaris, the Rapshakeh. Um, but what that translates to, so Tartan would be his supreme commander, uh, Rabsaris is his chief officer, and then Rabshakeh is field commander. And what those positions do, I don't know. Um, I'm not well-versed in military, but those are probably three of his most important guys, and they're kind of his, his henchmen. Um, and now he's sending them to try and uh, convince the king of Judah, convince Hezekiah from, um, from just sort of paying them and coming to an agreement. He wants them to pretty much completely submit and join forces with Assyria. And uh, it doesn't end well for them. Um, verse 19. Oh, what's up? What's up? I think in verse 17 it says that uh, not only did he send his three main guys, but he also sent a great army. Yeah, and he sent a great army. And in, in that sense, I think he's really trying to intimidate them. So they're pretty much coming up to the edge of the city, three of uh, the king of Assyria's main people, a whole army behind them, <clears throat> and especially based on what they're about to say in these next verses, I really think it's a power play. He's trying to intimidate them and show them, look, like, I don't know what kind of great power you think you have, but look at this army that I have. Um, <clears throat> so here's, here's what they actually say, verse 19. And the Rabshakeh said to them, say to Hezekiah, so Hezekiah is not present, he's got uh, a few of his representatives out there. Um, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord, our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? And I'm going to pause right here, um, just so you can get a sense for how much they have misunderstood who God actually is. They think that because he has removed the high places, he has removed these altars that people were worshiping, their understanding is, well, they removed the altars, so what, how are they supposed to worship if there's no altars? Um, and because that's, that's their worldview about what worship means. It means you have a physical thing, and you, that's where you make sacrifices, that's where you 
you look at it, and that's your God. That's it. There's nothing beyond that. Um, so it's very confusing to these men from Assyria that, uh, and they're trying to make, they're trying to reason with some of the, it's pretty much anybody who will listen. Hey, are you trusting in God when you've taken the altars for your God down? Like, how does that work? Um, so it's confusing to them, but as we understand God and as they understood God, God is not contained in an altar. So, of course, it wouldn't make sense to these people, but it should make perfect sense to the people of Judah and to us. Um, verse 23, Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. So that's kind of a challenge to Judah. If you even have 2,000 people you could put on these horses we're about to give you, then go ahead and do it. So he's not only saying, let's, let's join forces, but now he's putting down Judah's army. Let's join forces, but do you even have 2,000 people uh, that you could put on horseback for battle? Uh, verse 24, How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord, and he's saying, he's saying Yahweh, said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. And remember, this is a representative of the king of Assyria saying that. There is absolutely no way the Lord told him to come up and take this land. He is lying through his teeth to the people of Judah as a way to try and convince them. So now he's, not only has he said, are you trusting in Yahweh? Like, how can you do that if the altars are gone? Now he's also saying, Yahweh is the one who told me to come here, to take over this land. And uh, he's really at his wit's end trying to figure out a way to get these people to change their mind. Um, and it doesn't work. And he obviously doesn't know who Yahweh is. Um, and you'll see that in this next section a lot. And, but before we move on, he has asked so many questions. He has actually said very little. All he's doing is asking questions, trying to poke holes in the people's understanding of their faith in their king and also in their understanding of their faith in the Lord. And I can't help but be reminded of the snake in Genesis, who all he does is ask questions. He doesn't, uh, doesn't necessarily state something false, but he asks questions as his form of deception. Did God really say that? Uh, well, actually, no, he does state something false. But his first way into that is, did God really say that you couldn't have that fruit? Is that what he told you? And um, so he, this guy's using the exact same... Uh, argumentative method here. They're saying, are you trusting in God, the guy whose altars you just took away? Do you think that we came out here without God's approval? We did come here with God's approval. So he's, he's really, really using a very wicked form of deception, trying to uh, turn these people's beliefs around against them. Um, but fortunately, it doesn't work. It's not successful. Verse 26. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah, said to Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall, who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and to drink their own urine? Nasty. 28. The Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. So now he's saying, I want anyone in Judah to be able to hear this. I'm not even talking directly to Hezekiah anymore. He's speaking in their language. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. 
Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh by saying, Yahweh will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat his own vine, and each one of his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his hand out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hina, and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? So this is even further uh, proof of just how little they know about Yahweh. They're saying, look at all these lands we've conquered. Did their gods help them at all? Why do you expect your God to be any different? And not only is that completely misunderstanding that Yahweh is no regional idol that people worshipped, which regional idol you could just as easily say means fake God, because we don't believe that any of those gods were actually real. When they were making sacrifices, they were just, they were just killing a child for no reason at all. Um, completely deceived and really betrayed by uh, this lie that was in their land. Um, and so he's not understanding that God's not limited to one region. He's also not understanding that were the, even if these people really did worship real gods, Yahweh is far superior to any god they could make up. Um, uh, any god that needs to be appeased by some horrific practice in order to decide that he's going to do something for the land. Um, so he gets it way wrong, and, uh, and the people of Judah don't listen to him, even though he's talking directly to them, trying to usurp the power of the king. The people of Judah don't listen to him at all. Um, and you see this in verse 36. But the people were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. And you'll see this even in the New Testament. Tearing your clothes is a sign of grief, of great distress. So I don't think it's because they fell into a bunch of thorns. Um, they were probably really upset by what this guy was saying. Rightfully so. He's, he is... He does not know what he's getting himself into by the things that he's saying about God and especially the things he's saying uh, against the land of Judah. And them being people of Judah, that, that should be upsetting, right? If, somebody, if some foreign politician made a speech about how America is poison in the world and all this stuff, we would be a little upset about it, just being Americans. I would be. Um, and, uh, and if you brought God into it, especially would I be upset. I might even tear my clothes. I've never done that before on purpose. Um, so the other thing is that this, this could be a really tempting offer to some people. What The things that they're giving them, or they're, they're supposedly going to give them, they're saying, hey, we're going to bring you into a land just like this, but even better. We're going to have, everyone's going to have their own food. Everyone is uh, going to, there's going to be a land of grain and wine, of bread and vineyards, olive trees, honey. You may live and not die. Uh, some people were probably listening to this and being like, that actually sounds, that sounds pretty good. Uh, sounds like California. Um, 
but they are so obedient to Hezekiah that they don't, none of them says a word. Um, and that shows really how strong Hezekiah was as a king. And I think that strength is directly related to how close he was to God, how close he was and how reliant he was. And they use this, they throw this word trust around a lot when he's yelling out earlier. Um, well, I didn't underline it, unfortunately. But they said, in whom are you putting your trust? That you're able to so boldly deny uh, some sort of partnership, which would really mean Assyria was consuming Judah and absorbing them. Um, they're saying, who do you trust so much that you think that this is going to work out for you? And they're saying, we trust our king, we trust Yahweh. Um, and that's great. That is unfortunately something you don't see. That is not the norm in the Old Testament. There's a lot of unfaithfulness going on. So to see this example of faithfulness to Yahweh um, is great. And especially a faithful king who is faithful to Yahweh. That is great too. Um, and as we know, that doesn't last forever, but for now, that's something good to look at, that trusting in God yields good results. Um, so this next chapter, we see Isaiah pop up, and you might be thinking, Isaiah, he sounds familiar. Yes, the Isaiah who wrote the book of Isaiah. Um, this is where he first comes onto the scene, and he was called to be a prophet a few chapters earlier, um, and now he is fully a prophet. He's working closely with Hezekiah, and he is prophesying the things that the Lord is communicating to people. So he's speaking the word of the Lord uh, through his prophecies. So for the most part, anytime Isaiah is, something, is saying something in these chapters, he's saying something as a proxy for God. Um, so let's see what he has to say. Verse... 1, chapter 19. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. So as soon as he hears, hey, this guy wants to uh, wants Assyria to absorb Judah, and he said all this terrible stuff about Yahweh and how we shouldn't trust him, but then we shouldn't trust him, but also Yahweh somehow sent him to take us over. Um, and uh, Hezekiah's first response is, I need to go to the temple. I need to consult with God about this, which is, unfortunately, very different from a lot of the kings before him. We might go whole clusters of chapters without seeing Yahweh appear once, because kings just weren't concerned about what he had to tell them. And here Hezekiah is going to him first off. And that's, that's a good example for us. Um, because I think a lot of times we will be quick to go to worldly wisdom or even maybe ask one of our friends what we should do, which isn't necessarily bad, but um, if your friend is more of an authority over you than God is, that's where you might want to um, take pause a little bit and think about that. Um, obviously, if it's a friend who's always going to point you to Scripture, then that's, that's great. Um, but thinking about having God at least be our, our reflex, our knee-jerk, is thinking, what, what does God have to say about this? That's, that's how Hezekiah operates, and that's a good thing. Um, and we'll see why that's a good thing. He, he gets the results he needs. Uh, verse 2, And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amaz. 
They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of great or a day of distress, of rebuke and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that Yahweh has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord. And he'll say this every time he's speaking on behalf of God. Thus says the Lord. Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. And it's interesting. God could do all sorts of natural disasters, uh, all kinds of stuff to move these people away. And he says, you know what? The king of Assyria is so shallow. All I need to do is start a rumor about him, and he's going to turn back to his land. Um, And so they're here. They're ready to take over Judah. And I can only imagine it. Someone comes up and whispers something to him, and he's like, they said what? And then he turns around and takes everyone with him. Um, so very shallow, and, uh, but it gets the job done uh, for God. Verse 8, The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he heard that the king had left Lachish. Lachish. Um, I hope I'm doing that thing right. I just assumed that that was when, that CH is where you use it. Um, I haven't studied Hebrew like some of us, so... Uh, don't, don't take these pronunciations as absolutely true, um, but it gets us through. Now, the king heard concerning Tirhakah, king of Cush. Behold, he has set out to fight against you. So he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, You have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? Have the the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvim, the king of Hina, or the king of Iva? So basically these guys are on their way out, and they're saying, "You you haven't heard the last of Assyria, basically. What about all these people? What about all these people, these lands that we've taken over? Whatever, bye. Um, and uh, just kind of that last-ditch effort of just like, don't you remember all these lands we've taken over? You sure you don't want to reconsider? Um, but no, they don't want to reconsider. Um, verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. And so, important things to take here is, Hezekiah hears about the Assyrians leaving, and his first thing is not like, yes, 
I'm the best king ever. Even though he would be somewhat right. He's the best king Judah's ever seen. But his first response is, wow, thank the Lord that this happened because it is his victory, not mine. Uh, which is really, really cool. And uh, this prayer also is really neat. It sort of echoes the Lord's Prayer in certain ways. Now, obviously not line for line. I tried to do that, and that didn't work. But thematically, there's a lot of parallels. So if you remember, can someone recite the Lord's Prayer for me? I don't care what translation. Amen. Yes. And some of this, especially how it starts and how it ends, is very, very similar to, and remember the Lord's Prayer is a prayer that Jesus said, okay, if you're totally stuck on this praying thing, here's something you can pray and it'll always work. Um, and if you've tried it, it actually does. I tried that for a while. I've always praying through the Lord's Prayer, and it's not just the words themselves, but thinking about, okay, our Father who, was there, who art in heaven, what does that mean? Heaven, okay, that's really big. And just breaking down, like, what does each line mean about God? And that's really helpful. And uh, it's cool that this guy is so faithful, he just kind of does it on his own. So this first line, he says, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. And this is reminiscent of that first line because he's saying, God, hallowed be your name. These are all the magnificent things about you. You are the highest thing I can possibly think of. You created heaven and earth. Um, and then he says, incline your ear, O Lord. And he lists all of these things that are going on, things that they need help with. And then that's also sort of echoes the daily bread. Like, this is what we need right now. We need help against these enemies that are trying to are trying to attack us. Um, and then he ends with sort of a... He's reminding him, so Lord, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. And the Lord's prayer ends in, uh, what's God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, sort of in the middle there. And then some translations have it end with, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And he's basically saying, I want all the kingdoms of the earth to know that you are God, all the gods that they're worshiping. And he even says it here. He's got an immense amount of uh, discernment here. That He's like, they're not gods at all. So a, a guy just made these, and then people worship them. Um, so that recognition and just sort of the, the cadence of the prayers, I think is really cool how similar they are. Um, and if you want to read that, that's in, I was supposed to write it down, but then I didn't have a marker. Uh, Matthew 6, 9 through 13. That's where the Lord's Prayer is. Um, and so now we've got Hezekiah praying to him, saying, God, thank you for driving these people away, but we just we need protection from the Assyrians. Um, they are certainly a persistent people. Um, so now the Lord responds through Isaiah to Hezekiah. Verse 20. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. And so now, I, it's a little confusing if you're not understanding exactly who, what is being said to whom. This is the Lord speaking through Isaiah to the king of Assyria. So when I first started reading, I thought he was talking to Hezekiah, and I was like, what did Hezekiah do? Um... <laughs> He's talking to the king of Assyria. 
She despises you, she scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. So this is saying, Zion, these are sort of uh, very imagery-rich ways of saying, Zion and Jerusalem, these lands that are mine, are against you, king of Assyria. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon. I felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered its farthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters, and I dried up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. So he's saying, here's what you think you've done, king of Assyria. Um, Don't think that I don't know what your accomplishments are. Um, But then he responds and completely discredits everything the king of Assyria has done so far. He says in verse 25, Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before, it's, before it is grown. He's saying, I've seen all this stuff you've done. You know that's because I let you do it, right? Even before you were born, I knew that you would do it. And I've allowed this to happen. Um, and so if you're the king of Assyria listening to that, you'd be like, yeah, I did do that, I did do that. And then he comes in with, but I'm the one who allowed you to do it. I'm the one who said that you would do it. Any, any conquering you've been able to do has been because of me. He's like, oh, that really deflates his ego there. And that's the whole point. Um, and now that his ego is deflated, he is going to totally step on him. Um, but I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're oh, awake. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> just kidding. But now, now God is like, I know everything that you do. I know absolutely everything. Even the things that you thought were secret, I know. Because you have raged against me, and your complacency has come into my ears. I will put my hook in your nose, and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Um, that's a very unpleasant feeling, a hook in your nose. That doesn't sound, doesn't sound good. Um, and why would you put a hook in someone's nose? Um, because you're trying to get to the brain. Um, at least that's what they would do when they... Sorry, if this gets graphic, I'm, I apologize. But when they would mummify people to, in order to get someone's brain out of their skull, because their brain would rot inside of their skull, they would literally put a hook up and pull the brain out through the nose. And so that's just an unsettling image, and I apologize. But God said it, okay? Um, and also I think they did that when they were leading people captive. They would make yeah, sure that you had to fall. and that's unpleasant. You, you really can't resist if you've got a hook up your nose. Um, and so his message to the king of Assyria is, you're, you're absolutely nothing. Um, and this shall be the sign for you. This year, eat what grows of itself. And this, this is still God talking, but now he's out of the verse form, so now he's talking to Hezekiah. Uh, this year, eat what grows of itself, and in the second year, what springs of the same. Then in the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. And this is just kind of a complicated way of saying, I am in control, I am the God of the harvest, and here is specifically when you will pick from the harvest and eat that, and when you will uh, plant again and reap the harvest. 
Therefore, verse 32, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, or shoot an arrow here, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares Yahweh. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. He's still keeping that promise he made to David, even after all these generations. Verse 35, And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch his god, Adremelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon said his son reigned in his place. And so now the king of Assyria has just been wiped out completely. His own sons killed him. Um, and that is that for the most part. He's taken care of and we don't really see Assyria... Uh, for the next little bit here. So um, the faithfulness of Hezekiah brought him to pray to God about this problem. And since he was so faithful and he was always looking to God for these things, God says, you know what? Thank you, you know, good and faithful servant. I'm going to take care of them. Because Judah didn't have much in the way of military power at this point. So God said, okay, I will just do it. I will get rid of them. Um, which is very neat. Um, and says a lot about um, and there's a quote I meant to read earlier that I'll go ahead and read now. But, um, oh, crud, where is it? I don't think I wrote it down. Well, anyways, um, after the prayer, Hezekiah's prayer to God and this subsequent response, I, there was somebody who was quoted as saying, uh, those who trust God pray to God. And I think that's something helpful to see here. If you're trusting in him, that means we should, be, we should make it a habit of praying to him. And I heard somebody quote... Um, I hate quoting quotes, but I heard someone, I didn't hear it directly from Matt Chandler, but I heard someone quote Matt Chandler saying something. He said something along the lines of, we need to be bothering God all the time, pestering him with our prayers, and uh, not to go about it in a negative way, but, you know, anybody else might take it as being bothersome. Like, you're, oh, this guy's constantly texting me. Like, uh, when is he going to leave me alone? But that is what God wants from us. He wants us to be always, always seeking him and asking him things. And um, as we can see here, we don't have any prayers nearly as big as, hey, God, I need, this army is coming to attack this land that I'm king over. Can anyone say that for their situation? Probably not. Um, but, you know, he's, he gives them a big prayer, and God responds in a big way. So we can expect God to respond to our situation as well, even if it isn't quite how we expect it to be. Um, so the next two chapters are going to read a little bit quicker. It's a lot more straightforward. I don't have as much to dig into here. Um, we're unfortunately coming to the end of Hezekiah's reign as king. Um, and I think, yeah, chapter 20 is the last chapter we see Hezekiah. Um, so let's make the most of it. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and, at, and was at the point of death. And chronologically, this is sort of ambiguous because it says, in those days. So that's just talking about, at some point when Hezekiah was king, he became sick. It might have been after this. It may, it may have even been uh, before some of the stuff that happens in chapter 18. It's a little unclear. But they don't, they're not claiming that it 
happened at any specific point in time. This is just part of when he was reigning. Um, And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart, and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add fifteen years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, Bring a cake of figs, and let them take and lay it on the boil, that he may recover. So this might seem a little bit weird. Basically, Isaiah goes and tells Hezekiah, Hey, God says you're going to die. I'm sorry, man. And Hezekiah prays. He's like, God, but please? And and then it seems like God's reaction is, oh, I didn't know you wanted to live that badly. Okay. Um, this, was in, this was in God's plan from the beginning. And this is just God's way of calling him to bring himself closer. Because as we'll see a little bit later in this chapter, Hezekiah starts to slip just a little bit um, into pride. And I think the most faithful kings, that is the one sin they really wrestle with is pride. That they are so good, they start to... They start to think, man, I am so good, and not God is so good. Um, so Hezekiah gets sick. Lord's like, hey, if you, uh, and he encourages him to pray to him about it, and he takes that sickness away. But as we'll see here, Hezekiah has sort of this pride building in his heart. Um, verse 8, And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day? And Isaiah said, This shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do the thing that he has promised. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps or go back ten steps? And Hezekiah answered, It is an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen ten steps. Rather, let the shadow go back ten steps. And Isaiah the prophet called to the Lord, and he brought the shadow back ten steps, by which it had gone down on the steps of Ahaz. So Hezekiah is just looking for, how will I know when this this all takes place? Um, That's when a shadow starts to shrink against the whole, the way shadows are supposed to do stuff. Um, verse 12 at that time Merodach Baladan the son of Baladan king of Babylon sent envoys and with letters and a present to Hezekiah for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick and Hezekiah welcomed them and he showed them all his treasure house the silver, the gold, the spices the precious oil, his armory all that was found in his storehouses there was nothing in his house or in all the realm that Hezekiah did not show him when Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? From where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. He's, he's oblivious to why that might not be a good thing. Um, because not, he's, he's shown them everything. He's bared to a foreign country pretty much everything that he owns. Um, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of Yahweh. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. So he's saying, the Babylonians, they're going to take all that stuff that you just showed them. Um, And some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the place of the king of Babylon. 
Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, Why not, if there will be peace and security in my days? So he's still kind of oblivious. He's saying, Okay, that, that sounds good enough. Like, as long as, as long as no one attacks us while I'm king, I, I can live with that. And uh, so it's, he gets a little bit blinded by how well his reign is going, that he doesn't see, um, first of all, why this is a bad thing, and second of all, why the punishment that he receives for it is a bad thing. Um, the rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water into the city are then not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah and Hezekiah slept with his fathers and Manasseh his son reigned in his place and this next chapter is a little bit about Manasseh and uh, I'll spoil it a little bit now Manasseh is not nearly as good as his father Um, but I think that if anybody feels a little disappointed at the end of this chapter I think that's Right. I think that's supposed to happen because Hezekiah was a great king, but it's clear evidence here that he was not the Messiah. He's not the one that they're waiting for. Even though he is in the line of David, um, he had his screw-ups, as good as he was. And there's a, you get that ache, I think, when you read throughout the Old Testament and read about these kings, and that's an ache that the Lord wants to bring out of us because none of these guys quite cut it. Not even David cut it. And he wrote so many poems of worship to God. Um, And that ache is there because we actually do see this being fulfilled. When Jesus comes, he's like the, he's that release of that tension where we've had these kings that are either terrible or good, but, you know, something is off. Um, When Jesus comes as the Messiah, as the king that's to reign over us, that is the final, like, finally, you know? It is finished. The work is done. Jesus is here. He's the one that we've been expecting. So right now we're in that time of building that expectation where we've got these really crummy kings or we've got these good kings that people had a lot of hope for and then didn't quite measure up in some way. Um, So we kind of hit this peak, or I guess going this way for you guys. We hit this peak, and now with Manasseh, we're going to start to fall a little bit again. Um, And there's not a lot I need to talk about, so I'll just read this last chapter. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. Yikes. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And if you remember Ahab, he is not the guy you want to be compared to. Um, And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering, and used fortune-telling and omens, and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers. If only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So Manasseh is not just bad, he's worse than some of these pagans. Um, 
Verse 10, And the Lord said by his servants the prophets, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such a disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle, and I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides the sin that he made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his house, in the garden of Uzzah, and Ammon, his son, reigned in his place. Ammon was twenty-two years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshumaleth, Meshulameth, sorry, the daughter of Haruz of Jotbah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. He walked in all the way in which his father walked, and served the idols that his father served, and worshipped them. He abandoned Yahweh, the God of his fathers, and he did not walk in the way of the Lord. And the servants of Ammon conspired against him, and put the king to death in his house. But the people of the land struck down all those who had conspired against King Ammon. And the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Ammon that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And he was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah, and Josiah his son reigned in his place. So, very much a decline uh, for Judah. What's interesting, though, is these guys tried to pretty much end um, the Davidic line right here by killing, uh, by killing Manasseh, and then... Uh, or sorry, by killing Ammon, who was just as bad as Manasseh. But even though they got killed, the people of Judah killed them and then reinstated Josiah, who is still a descendant of David. So even throughout all of this chaos and really bad stuff, the Lord is still faithful in his promise that the line of King David will continue. Um, and that's really important to see here. And it's also important to remember that the story does not end here. Yes, this is bad. This is not the kind of cliffhanger we want. Um, this is like when Han Solo was frozen in carbonite at the end of the Empire. You're just like, no, what? That's terrible. But remember, we know the ending of the story. We know that Jesus comes and redeems even, even this despicableness. Um, and we live after that fact. So be fortunate that that's the case. Um, so does someone want to pray for us and then we'll be on out. Um, oh, real quick, next week, Morgan, what's his last name? Nope. Morgan is a man. He, uh, he works for the mission board of the... Um, Morgan Malone. Yes, Morgan Malone. He's going to be teaching Manna next week. He is Chase and Stephanie's boss, so he's the real deal. Um, if you thought Chase was good, this guy, um, Morgan Malone, he'll be here next week. So make sure you attend that, because it's going to be exceptional. And we'll be finishing Second Kings, I think, so that'll be good, too. Mm-hmm. And then, who knows what's after that? Probably the next book. Um, anyways, does someone want to pray? And then we'll, we'll go.